Larry David would have been prepared for this pandemic years ago, right? <laughs> like we yes. just need a little of that energy of being like, uh, you're a little too close there. I'm a little uncomfortable. Can you back it up? He doesn't care. We should adopt some Larry David energy in telling people uh, about our, our personal COVID boundaries, which should be all of our boundaries. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm the creator and editor of LaineyGossip.com. I'm also a talk show host in Canada and an entertainment reporter and... Yeah, even though we've been on a little break, I'm still into BTS. I am Duana Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer, and probably the person who has read more celebrity memoirs than anyone you know. That is a fact. On this new episode, we get into the new job position that's been created in Hollywood, and whether or not you think you would have the qualifications and the ability to carry it out. Then we explore a profile where Chris Rock's new role led him to learn new things about himself or possibly the things he learned about himself, including in therapy, helped him in his new role. Chicken or egg, both are delicious. We're back. This is Show Your Work. We're back. Hi. We, I don't know, we had an end of summer Emmys slash birthday break. Slash birthday break. <laughs> we, <laughs> I mean, look, I applaud your branding skills, but we paused for what was going to be a week and then was two weeks and so forth, like end of August. And then there was Tiff and so forth. And with all respect, your birthday was <laughs> two days ago relative to when we're recording this. I that that is an impressive move. Well you done. You know me. You know me. I am birthday thirsty. I have to wait I, another uh, year. So or do we pretend that this a lot of people were saying, oh, 2020 is a write-off, so I didn't get a year older. I'm considering that. I, yeah, I don't mind that at all, actually, especially because everybody is going to have aged or not aged in exact proportion to one another, right? So yeah, why not? We can all shave a year off. That's it's, fine. It's also like in television, if there's a really shitty season, people uh, like decide not to include that season. It's the season that shall not be named. Um, like it's not canon. Bas basically, yeah. this year is not canon. <laughs> That's fine. Right? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything good that we would have to discard as a result. Like WAP maybe would be the only thing that would be that we'd be sad to miss about 2020 so far. And BTS. Yeah, but BTS <laughs> existed before and will exist after, right? Right, but this is the year that they did get to number 1 on the Hot 100 for the first time and 
we're recording this on Monday and the news just came out. They went back to number one. So they like had two weeks in a row. Then they came down for two weeks to number two. And now they're back at number one. That's a big deal. This is a real ethical dilemma for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I think that if it's for the good of our collective mental health to just like not consider 2020 as canon, I feel like they would have the generosity of spirit to agree to that. Okay. All right. Are you done with my BTS mentions? Uh, everybody is done with your BTS mentions. <laughs> everybody has their dose for the week. Um, but, you know, it's been it's been interesting, right? Because we always kind of thought that the Emmys, which uh, were a week and change ago per our recording time, were going to be like a, a benchmark of the new everything. Like, how are they going to do it? How did they do and it, wouldn't you say like entertainment news and stories are happening at a different pace now, right? At a different pace, but also not not necessarily a different slower pace. Like I feel like at moments it's still quite frenetic. There's more new music this year than we ever expected. It seems like artists are coming out with dropping new tracks every Friday um, because recording music really is the one thing that really hasn't been delayed. Like you don't have to put in a million and one protocols, new protocols. And we'll be talking about this in a second um, to make that happen. Lots of artists have recording studios in their own space. Even if you go to a recording studio, it, it doesn't involve 40 people typically. Well, that's it, right? Like unless you're a choir recording, like any given anything would be recorded in isolation. You know, you're in your own booth, you're recorded at one time and then mixed together later. So yeah, I would say it is, it is quite easy, asterisk on easy, everything sucks, but it's quite easy to mix new music relative to almost everything else. Well, if you think about it, even a recording studio in and of itself is social distancing before social distancing because the engineer, I mean. yeah, the engineer's and on the other side of the glass and there's so many doors like for soundproofing, but also for, uh, you know, can double COVID for proofing. safety, right? <laughs> yeah. If you walk into a studio, there's a door to the studio, another door to the booth, uh, another door to like a producer's area, which can or can't be where, uh, the engineer is depending um, and then there's like another separate band area and then maybe an ISO booth for your vocalist. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of doorknobs, but it's, it's distance wise. It is about as safe as it comes. For now, until, you know, the scientists let us know that COVID is aerosol and okay, then okay. all bets are off. Okay. I am, I'm pausing you <laughs> because, um, yeah, we can't get into that. There's new research, there's old research, there's things happening that, that way madness lies. We can't talk about it. Oh no. I, I, sorry. I just, I, I think Sasha temporarily took over my body just there. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and listen, I will have that conversation with you offline anytime. <laughs> um, but it is kind of interesting in terms of how people are making workarounds happen, right? Or not. I mean, like, yes, the priority or at least the stated goal is to make workarounds happen, but it does sound like so far, at least everything I've read, has it's been a it's a, a total crapshoot. There's no standardized process. Right. Everybody is trying to make it happen however 
they can happen, right? Whatever is a, is working until it's not. And yeah. that's really the way that you test it is like until it doesn't kind of thing. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure I agree. I mean, like, let's so let's get into it. You sent me a story about how they are uh, they're working um, on Riverdale right now, shooting in Vancouver per usual. Yes, and they I think it was uh, KJ Apa and yep. um, Camille uh, Camila Mendez. <laughs> Yes. Right? Um, they they posted an, a video on Instagram where they were like both gargling with mouthwash before shooting a makeout scene. Which, let's be clear. I mean, they said, this is our new protocol. Um, I don't know how much he was joking. It's, you know, a video on his Instagram. Um, but... I don't think that is being actually mandated by anybody. I yeah, don't no. think that this is how you make out is what actually is top of mind for most producers when they're talking about COVID. Uh, but, uh, you know, more power to them. I can, though, I mean, this is the problem. It's you can sort of see the logic of it, right? If uh, all sets, and we'll get into this in a second. Um, if almost every set is having a daily check before you enter, which in most places looks like, you know, a temperature check, a symptom report, that kind of thing, then you have to assume that what they're doing with the mouthwash is, well, in case I got something between eight hours ago when I showed up on set and now let me see if I can kill it with mouthwash, right? Like that's the logic there. Yes. And I don't think it's yeah that they're I mean, using it as their only covid control no no pro definitely not and let's 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 be clear probably they've all been tested even before going to work and they're expected to observe bubbles so including the bubble of the set which gets exponentially bigger when you consider how many local people are employed when they go back to their families, the fact that you know some families have kids who are already in school whatever ha having said that like the mouthwash thing, yes, it was a cheeky thing to post and say our new normal, but the new normal right now is to figure out how to make workplaces as safe as possible and how to get productions up off the ground. But there is no new standardized normal. And in the last few days, there have been several reports that have come out about how um, no one has a template for how everything should be observed. And that's what's pretty concerning. For sure. So let's take an example. Um, Vancouver, where Riverdale is shooting, is open for production right now. Um, so there are a number of productions shooting. I've also heard that there have been certain productions that have uh, some COVID cases. I, I don't want to use the word outbreak because I think there's probably a standard for what constitutes an outbreak. Um, but, uh, but by and large, it is considered to be a safe place to work. And I think, uh, Los Angeles is really piecemeal in terms of where they're allowed to shoot and when, um, but there are some things happening like that. And you sent me an article from the Hollywood reporter, uh, that referenced, um, a, a Netflix-esque protocol that I found kind of uh, interesting, um, that they are separating the set into zones 
meaning that uh, a red, yellow, and green zone, and you have a pass. It's like the White House. Do you remember that part in Veep where somebody's mad because they got downgraded a pass color? So it's that kind of idea, right? It's like a VIP pass kind of thing. Um, The actors uh, and the actual hot set, like the physical place where the cameras are shooting, is in the red zone. Um, and people who need to be in the red zone, uh, on the crew would be hair and makeup and, uh, you know, certain camera crew and the director certainly. And the idea is that anybody who doesn't need to be there would stay beyond it in the yellow zone. And beyond that would be people who don't actually physically need to approach the set, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of production, office staff or PAs or whatever else. It it just creates a lot more, I guess, checkpoints. Right. So that's a philosophy that's happening. Um, Oh, and I should say the reason it's, I said a Netflix protocol is because Netflix is the one calling it red, yellow, and green. Uh, And then other productions are calling it ABC, which seems A, much less intuitive and B, like as though it's referencing ABC, which is not the case. It's not about the American Broadcasting Corporation. Yeah, I yeah, you're right. Netflix has, and that it's still like a trial, right? Like it's still, oh, here's what we've thought of. Whereas you can go from a Netflix set to, let's say, I don't know, an Amazon set or a CBS set, and the protocols will be completely different. So if you are an actor, there are like in every industry, there are set standardized protocols. For example, a call sheet. Everybody knows from set to set, from company to company, what a call sheet is. Um, COVID procedures should be something that like is standardized across wherever you go. It's just that nobody has the information and nobody really, like there are no guidelines. Who's providing these guidelines? Is it the unions? Is it, I, I don't know. Is it the well, CDC? That is what is so like fucking confusing. The answer to who's providing these guidelines is yes. Um, that is, if you say, is it the unions? Yes, all of the unions have specific protocols for their um, for their members, right? But then they, yeah, they all have to talk to one another. Uh, you made a point about like families and spouses and things like that. Uh, that, you know, anybody who most places I think are having you isolate for 14 days, uh, and then have a COVID test and then from a clean test, then you get your temp check every day. Uh, but does that apply to your spouse, the postal worker as well, or the, you know, whatever doctor, anything of the kind, it's impossible to, to keep those things super tight. Right. Yeah. And then. Um, at the same time, there's also questions of like, and then what, uh, there's a piece, there's a part in this Hollywood reporter article where they talk about, there's no concept yet of what a cluster is and what requires a shutdown. I guess that's what I was talking about when I was talking about an outbreak, uh, like, you know, some of the productions quoted in the piece say we'll shut down with one positive test. Uh, and then for others, they reference the Dr. Oz show. It's more like three. And that's not a quote, like that's not a piece, that's not a line that specifically was quoted. But I even wonder if somebody said it's more like three, which then gives you wiggle room. Is it four? 
Is it, is yeah. it like if we get three twice in a row, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really interesting uh, because at the same time, and you may not agree with me on this front, but working with large crews like this as often as I do, you also go, well, they have to find some way to do something, you know, like the, it, on mass television, which by the way, we're consuming at a massive rate mm-hmm. has to continue to produce itself somehow films somehow. So it's like, is a method that is kind of good enough, good enough, or is it like, what else, what else should we, should we do? You know? And I'm not saying that in a, in a grumpy way. I'm just curious about where we're going to go. Well, I think it, to me, and this is like the most Pollyanna response, I think it requires a certain amount of vigilance, which is going to test not just our COVID temperature, but also a lot of a lot of the other issues that we've been talking about related to workplace safety even before COVID, like respecting boundaries, like bullying, like harassment. So the reason why I thought about this is because there's another piece that I sent to you from Vulture that was published a few days ago. Um, and the title of the piece is, I'm an onset COVID person, whatever that means. As production resumes amid, amid the pandemic, a new role is causing confusion and consternation. So people are on sets with protocol, arbitrarily assigning Uh, what is loosely called uh, with the title, the the position is COVID compliance officer. Right. Or they say here, it might also be infection prevention coordinator or COVID producer. Yes. Um, Which is kind of hilarious because of those three titles, I have very different opinions about wanting to be any given one of them. Right. That's funny you say that because I also, I, I, that is where I want to take the direction of this conversation is that a new job has been created just like an intimacy coordinator, what, which is what we've been talking about for the last couple of years, um, ever since me too. And the mainstream, uh, um, the mainstream spotlight that me too has ha- like has resulted in. And so we've talked about intimacy coordinators being a new job, new ish, Right. Added to every set. Amazing. So now we have another new job, like in Hollywood, on sets, this COVID compliance officer or whatever you want to call it. I was on a set recently. There was a COVID compliance officer. You know, it was a temperature check when we got in. And then you get a briefing. So each person has a one-on-one with the COVID compliance officer, at least in my case, where they get at least... What happened to me was it got really granular. Let me demonstrate for you how to put a mask on. Right. So here are, here's where we sanitize. Please don't do this. This, I mean, it was a pretty comprehensive, you know, several minutes, maybe even like 20 minutes of walking wow. you through all the safety. Okay. Okay. And then that person also is stationed there watching everything because you know what? People fall into old habits very quickly. It's even for those of us who've been the last six months living through all of this, we lapse sometimes. Sometimes we forget to bring our masks. Sometimes we forget to put our masks on when we go inside somewhere, right? And then someone has to say to you, hey, yo, put your mask on. And you're like, whoa, whoa, okay, I got it. So that person is supposed to be the narc, really, the buzzkill 
to be like, you've overstepped by one inch. That is not six feet. Please separate yourselves. And in this Vulture article, there are different accounts from different sets in different situations. And they have said more or less all of these people giving their stories and their anecdotes. The compliance officer sometimes is like fucking out to lunch. And do you want to be that person? So if this was your job, are you going to be the person running around with a clipboard and a walkie talkie and a megaphone yelling at somebody across the room being like, Cover your mask, cover your nose with your mask. Your mask has slipped off your face by one millimeter. You know what I mean? Because that's what the job is. Well, and so that's what the job is. When I first read this article, I thought it was, I can't believe this is the reference we're throwing back to. But you and I talked on the podcast about being the resident fire marshal at work. Yes. Um, And that is where people who already work at a given workplace are assuming another entirely voluntary uh, job, right? That if if there's a fire, the fire marshal has to put on a vest and direct people out. I don't think they're responsible for life-saving, but they have tasks. That's what I thought this COVID producer job was initially. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why it makes a difference to me. Because oh, um, I, d- that not person, to you, it makes a big difference to me. It shouldn't yeah. be that, like that. Well, but yes and no. And I'll tell you why, though. This is what I'm getting at. Because um, in that case, if I'm the fire marshal or if I'm the COVID producer, I am also an endemic part, no pun intended, of the set. I'm supposed to be there. I have other jobs. People are likely to listen to me because I am one of the family, you know, Um, where it is a COVID producer here. You know, there's a lot of references to set medics. And in my experience, there may be set medics as on crews who are a part of the family. But in my experience, the set medic is almost always an anonymous stranger. To the point where, and you've seen this on TV or heard it, medic, get the medic. The drivers, you know all of them, you know their names and who they are and their personality types or the craft people who make snacks. But the medic is an anonymous person. And so, and they're always trained to be like, you should be far away from set unless you're called for. They're always like in a corner on a folding chair and it can be a different person every day. There's no sort of sense of, this person being in the production and caring about it as much as we do. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think there's good and bad to that. For example, do we think the COVID producer should ruin a shot in order to flag that somebody's mask is not on? Like just true or false? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. So that's a reason for that person not to be a part of the team um, because they're going to be hated by the team when Mm -hmm. they ruin a perfect take right? Yeah. Um, or that they, for them not to, or even to be changed out so that they don't get over familiar and start doing favors kind yep. of thing for their crew or looking the other way. Um, but at the same time, it makes it just one of those things that you have to roll your eyes at the same way that you roll your eyes at like, you know, the lawyers who say, please do not make references to 
uh, another galaxy is this could be seen as a Star Wars reference and be, yes. you know, litigatable or yeah. whatever. This is a like, job for somebody who, when you take this job on, like no one's going to like you. You're going to be looked at as the Star Wars nerd or the person who walks around correcting people's grammar or the person who, you know, that it's kind of like the know-it-all in class. Oh, it's a professional killjoy. Yes. You're a buzzkill. Yes. On purpose, you have to be. That's the gig. Yeah. And I mean, what, maybe who is the personality sorry. type? Who is the person? You've got to also be a certain personality type because like, I mean, I, I, in general, I'm just not that person. That's not to say I want everybody to like break the rules and relax the rules. I'm just not a rules enforcer. But that's kind of why I wonder if it was somebody who was already there or if it was a job that was shared among three people, like a civic duty, right? Hey, you have a responsibility in addition to your other tasks to be this week, you and three other people are the COVID enforcers. Uh, A, don't put it on one person because depending on how big a production is, one person can't see all things to all 200 crew members. Um, and second, uh, so that people aren't avoiding that one person. If you and I are laughing and joking together one week and the next week I say to you, can you get your shit together and put your mask on properly? Then we have a relationship and you're more likely to listen to me. I agree. I, I see your point. Like, I mean, I, I for sure see your point that you don't want this person to be an outcast and you want their words to carry some weight. But I think on the flip side of that is that the familiarity will not create any sense of urgency and taking things seriously. And frankly, like not to be that person, I guess I'm becoming that person. If, if people were taking it seriously, then would we be in this position globally? No, for sure. But I think uh, and everybody who skirts the rules ever thinks I'm just one person. My skirting the rules won't be that big a deal. But of course, it's it's evident that that's what's adding up to this problem, right? I guess I think uh, that, you know, people who want to keep working, uh, who have to work in these group environments would at least be maintaining the letter of the law because that's their livelihood. I mean, how well are the, are the baseball players complying? You know, um, that's, what's interesting is that we talked about, you know, the narc line, right? Like in basketball at, at, you know, when they first got into the bubble, they set up a narc line for the players to fucking narc themselves out and they were using it. They were, to your point, they were calling out their, fellow players, their fellow athletes who were leaving the bubble, leaving the perimeter, perimeter, either going to get takeout or whatever the euphemism for takeout is going to be. And they were calling each other out because they wanted to keep playing. Um, and so, yeah, I think that for sure there are some people who want it to be safe so that they can keep playing, keep shooting. And then there are people, unfortunately, who are going to be lax, who are going to break the perimeter and need the tip line to be fucking called out. Okay. So number one, we need an arc line. I think that is a, like, that's great. Um, and it can be anonymous, right? You, uh, in Canada, I'm not sure how much this is deployed elsewhere, 
but there is an app that will anonymously alert you if your phone was in contact with the phone of somebody who tested positive. Um, like it, it enables your phone to know where you are. It's tracking your location. So people get sensitive. Um, but it is a thing. And if I got a positive COVID test, which by the way, I've been hearing rumors that there are people in certain places who keep that secret. Like it's some sort of shame. Yeah. It's, that's not a thing guys. Like everybody's going to get it eventually. Sorry. That's a true thing. Um, it's not shameful any more than we should be shaming people for like having a cold at work, which we also do, but that's another story. If I had COVID and I'd have, I've, I've recovered, I'd actually be announcing it because it means that I'm kind of the safest to be around. Well, and also you would just love that. You would make it like, <laughs> I do my not COVID want diaries COVID. <laughs> would, no, but you, you would enjoy being able to make a thing. But the point is if I got COVID, I could put uh, an alert in this app and it would ping anybody who had been near me, near my phone and say, you may have been exposed, go check it out. Um, it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing, but I think too, what this is coming down to, and this is really what you're getting at is people are still super uncomfortable policing other people's behavior. Like we hear a lot about people who push back against masks or against their personal freedoms. Or seeing Um, harassment unfold in front of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, But people are really uncomfortable with checking others. That's not something we do in our society, right? No. And that's why I think this is such an interesting example to talk about that these themes that we're, that we, we are discussing with respect to COVID in particular right now are really things that we've been talking about for a long time. Absolutely. It's just now this is do or die, right? And where celebrity comes into play, I certainly hope that uh, most celebrities would be aware they're being asked to be the face of this stuff so often that you'd think they'd be up on it. But in the Vulture piece, there's a story where there was a a famous talent who'd flown in from a hotspot state, they say, um, and production said, oh, they got a waiver. They don't have to quarantine. Uh, And the COVID producer was like, that's not a thing. Um, anyway, so that person shows up, they're walking all around, there's no mask and the crew was angry. The crew was very frustrated, um, and came to complain to the COVID producer. So to your point, the, the tattletaling works in that way. So COVID producer says to the producers, you need to tell her she needs to put on a mask right now. And they said, well, when on camera, she won't have to, and we're going to be filming her all day. So what's the point of having her put on for 10 minutes right now? Um, and that's kind of the attitude. And that is not from, that's just straight up being afraid of saying something to offend a celebrity. Yeah. Like who I, I can't imagine would actually be offended. Maybe they would with the no quarantine thing. I have no idea, but it's that's what that fear is. I'm afraid to tell her she has to do a bad thing. And it's that to me is what is where we're at. Like there's a stunning lack of, of, of guts and, and stones right now, you know? But I mean that, but again, that speaks to 
like how ingrained power and being inconvenient and all of that from sexual harassment in the workplace, from toxic workplace environments. Like it's this, it's the same DNA. You know what I mean? I'm afraid to confront the producer who keeps inappropriately touching interns. I am afraid to confront the talk show host who is uh, an asshole to cast and crew. Right. But even those producers who are of a certain power level, this COVID producer went to the producer producers Mm -hmm. and was like, yo, it's your job. It's your set. Yeah. Um, And still they were afraid to offend this person. It's mind blowing and it, it doesn't have to be this way. And that's why I'm leaning more on the side of, you know, the COVID compliance officer or whatever we want to call this person's job title to be not a member of the set. For a variety of reasons, I think practically uh, you want a person who is dedicated and has only spends their hours of their time looking into the updates on procedure, the new science updates, all of that. And frankly, if you tack it onto somebody else's job, I mean, like everybody's already overloaded and overwhelmed. And so how up to date is that person going to be? Number one. But number two, mostly it's for the same reason as whenever there's an uh, an investigation that needs to happen over a workplace, like like um, violation, be it harassment, being a, be it like whether or not uh, it's a racialized environment. What we always want is to bring in a third party investigator, right? It's never you investigate yourself, you monitor yourself. Warner Brothers brought in or claimed to have brought in a third party investiga- investigator for the Ellen thing. All kinds of sets and productions and companies have brought in independent third party investigators to look up and down the organization and have no real say in theory about what goes on. And that's why I also think that, you know, the COVID compliance officer can't really have a stake in what's happening on the set except to preserve safety. But that's why I think we need several. I hear that. I do. But those people are often being hired um, with little to no training because there hasn't been this position before, as you I know, point out. Yeah. Um, and they don't necessarily know how to, you know, how to enforce that. Um, you know, there's another story in this article uh, from a premium cable drama where the set medic is tattling, but they're not the COVID officer. And they are like, I see her doing nothing all the time. She doesn't do anything. Um, and she has these PAs in fluorescent vests also not doing anything. And so nobody's taking it seriously. Um, at least, you know, if it's several people that we know and we see them, like to me, the other argument is we have to be the change, right? The other part of it is when we talk about um, stopping or preventing anti-Black racism or other kinds of racism or bias, when we talk about, you know, treating people equally and hearing uh, voices that we don't usually hear, we talk about how it has to be all of us, mm-hmm. how each of us has to be committed to doing that and we can't leave it to the somebody else to be the person, mm-hmm. Right. Um, to get into that personal responsibility thing, which you'd think would translate here because it affects each of us in a real abject way. Um, Not that we shouldn't all be concerned about those other issues, but you can see a world in which somebody says uh, an offside 
comment with racist bias in it missed my ear or whatever, we all should be looking at uh, health and sanitation at this point as something that is essential to all of us, which is why I hope that it would be more resonant if it was people that we know and believe in. Which brings us back to the tattle line, <laughs> which clearly was working to your point, right? Like a cor- the basketball players were using it. They were tattling on each other. Um, it also allows for the um, the measures against whomever to be targeted, right? You know, when that thing happens, it's like high school or junior high school where you know that three people snuck out and did whatever and broke a window and the principal comes on and goes, students should be careful after school and should respect the property around us. Everybody's like, come on, that doesn't do anything. Nobody gets in trouble. I mean, I think what we're coming down to here is people have to be personally penalized for not complying, right? Yeah, I and I, you know, I think that one of the reasons why NBA, the NBA's tip line worked is because it's it was players on players. Like the tip right. line was literally set up for players to <laughs> to rat out other players. So you already dealing with inequality in in the status. Like right, right? A tip line on a set like this, my worry and I for sure I think we should definitely the tip line should happen, like for sure. It's just that you have different layers of people who are calling in, right? Like you have crew who might be complaining about the celebrity, number one on the call sheet. And we might run into the situation you just talked about where like, yeah, okay, someone narks out the 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 number one on the call sheet, but what are then what are the producers going to do about it, right? Like that is what's so tricky about these situations. Whereas like player to player, LeBron is calling out, you know, Kevin Durant, who's calling out somebody else. Like that is there. The, the, the top soldiers are, are like, you know, monitoring each other. But I don't see the difference. So let's say that all the complaints come in about LeBron. What you're asking is who's going to drop the hammer on him, right? Yeah. And the answer is the, what, the team managers, the team owners, like whoever yeah. pays his salary, right? Probably the, the commissioner. Thing, <laughs> sure. The commissioner. The, the same thing applies here. Like the person who's going to drop the hammer on that number one on the call sheet is ultimately the executive producer at the studio. Well, no, what I mean who, though is that the, the NBA's tip line was yeah. only players, so right when, to the point where someone says to LeBron, yo, the other players have fucking, you know, complained about you. He knows that the complaints are only coming from on-court players. The equivalent to that in Hollywood would be that the tip line is set up only for actors. So Jennifer Lawrence is calling out Emma Stone, who's calling right. out... Carrie Washington. You're hearing it from your peers, other actors. That is like the shame level. Because if it if it's an, an anonymous anonymous tip line that's set up for an entire set that includes PAs and whatever, uh, okay, great. The grips, so I then okay. it's not there. You know what I mean? But like then the, the celebrity doesn't give a fuck. Here's how we do that. 
Yeah. But that's no problem. Here's how we do that. We set it up by department because that's really how set hierarchies run. It is like the director and then down, down, down. But actually, yeah. you you live and die by your department. So we'll have a tip line for the art department, a tip line for uh, on camera. We'll have a tip line for uh, uh, teamsters and drivers and so forth. That ain't no thing. And don't tell me that these massive media telecom companies can't set up a few tip lines. Like, that's no big deal to separate it that somebody in your department is complaining about you, one of your contemporaries or five of your contemporaries, um, you know, so that it's not overly targeted or that, to your point, that you can ignore it because it's like, well, somebody on set somewhere saw you blow your nose. Um, Fair enough. You know, that's it's not perfect, but we got to do a something because by the opposite, you know. If we have a COVID, my worry is that if we have a COVID compliance producer who's not a part of the team, then they go report to whoever, whoever their boss is, um, who's their boss, probably the executive producer on set, who then can turn around and decide whether they think those complaints are valid or not, right? Or one person talked about getting fired because they were being so insistent that producers deal with things. So it's no system is perfect, but I think we got to have people taking personally responsible, personal responsibility for their shit. Yeah, I listen, I think it always will go back to what you said several minutes ago about let's, I don't know, start practicing or getting better at just being able to face to face say to someone, can you fucking wear your mask? Because like, I don't want COVID. Can you fucking not, you know, spray your shit all over the place? Can you fucking respect this? Tip lines wouldn't be necessary if we were all more comfortable just being able to say to each other, hey, offside, check in And we should now. probably, we should practice that in situations where we feel comfortable, right? Like in situations where if you come to drop something off to my house, for example, and I know you've been in your house for a month and I've been in my house for a month and maybe we reach out our arms, but our arms are actually only two feet long. So that's only four and a half feet. We probably should actually reprimand each other. Like, nope, that's not six feet. Put it there. Like we should practice on people we feel comfortable with so that we can start to say it with others, with colleagues. Yeah, public service announcement, man. Like, I I guess it's because for us in our particular neighborhood and where we live, I mean, the numbers are just very, very bad. And Well, uh, yeah, things are not good. But also, I think it's a good method. But maybe, too, I feel a little bit of joy in, like, that this is pub- this is uh, sanctioned uh, public confrontation. I'm not an asshole. I don't have road rage. But as you know, I do like to be right. And I do <laughs> like correcting people. So this feels like a, a sanctioned reason to be able to tell people, excuse me, excuse me, follow the rules. Um, you know, uh, my husband has a, a couple of masks with Larry David all over them, which are quite entertaining. Um, although you kind of have to be closer than six feet to see that it's Larry David. But we talk all the time about how Larry David would have been prepared for this pandemic years ago, right? Like we (laughs) just need a little of that energy of being like, uh, you're a little too close there. I'm a little uncomfortable. Can you back it up? He doesn't care. 
we should adopt some Larry David energy in telling people uh, about our, our personal COVID boundaries, which should be all of our boundaries. Well, if you're out there and you happen to be your company, your department's COVID compliance officer, would love to hear from you. Let us know. If you think this is the perfect job for you and why, like you were made to be a COVID compliance officer because you are that person, um, also let us know. And all of your thoughts on, on how COVID compliance should really be executed in workplaces. Yeah. And if there's something that we're missing about sets uh, in particular or workplaces as a whole in the larger sense, we want to know. Fill us in. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So one of the things that we said earlier is we were talking about the coverage of celebrity and entertainment news changing not necessarily being slower, I do think it is in many ways deeper. There's the time to address certain things. And there is a profile of Chris Rock in the Hollywood Reporter that is in advance of his starring role in the new season of Fargo. Um, And it is, I would argue, easily the most in-depth article that Chris Rock has, or the, the most in-depth interview or profile piece that Chris Rock has ever been the subject of. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've known Chris Rock for a long time. Decades on decades. And there are things Chris Rock reveals for the first time ever in this piece. Right. And some of those are because, first of all, the this is the obligatory Chris Rock is 55 comment, which... Chris Rock is eternally 31, as far as I'm concerned. I agree. Um, So part of them are because, yeah, these are things Chris Rock is now just figuring out. But the other part is because maybe nobody asked before. Um, Mm -hmm. And that goes to so many things, right? It is about the way that we cover Black people and Black entertainers, for sure, Um, It's also kind of, I think, this article, big spoiler, is deals heavily with Chris Rock's mental health um, and his discoveries about his mental health. And I think that in a lot of cases, we cover uh, mental health only in the sense of somebody saying, I had a crisis and then this happened. Uh, And he's sort of come out with some revelations about himself and about his uh, growth that weren't linked to any sort of public uh, display of, you know, discomfort or falling out, which I think is kind of a big deal. Yeah. And all the things that you've said, just like the cumulative value of it brings us to Chris Rock in the space he's occupying or at least wants to assert himself into now. And that's what this this profile is doing. It's really like, um, it's really the first time 
we are being asked to see Chris Rock as like a mega star. And he checks all the boxes, right? Started on Saturday Night Live when he was very young, anointed by Eddie Murphy, went on to act in movies, produce TV shows. He's a content creator. He can get things green lit. Um, and I really like this flex. Like he's kind of basically saying, I've been underrated. You need to put me in the same category as these people. Like I've been here for years kind of thing. Yeah. And I agree with you a hundred percent in terms of we should have been seeing him this way. Um, you know, he's, he's long been ready. I mean, he actually takes some issue with that about whether he has been ready for this kind of role. Um, yeah, but uh, obviously we could have the conversation we've been having about uh, undervaluing talent of color, people of color, and like using their talent um, without sort of fairly compensating them either financially or creatively. But he also kind of says, I wasn't standing up for it for myself. This is where the personal growth part of it is as interesting, if not more, as the um, as the sort of systemic parts of it. Uh, so, yeah. you know, this centers around Fargo, which uh, had the season premiere was Sunday night. Uh, are you, you watch Fargo, right? Like you're in on all the seasons, you know what's up? I'm not in on all the seasons. Uh, the The season that I know best is Kirsten Dunst's of season. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so no, I'm not, uh, not, I'm not a Fargo expert. Every season of Fargo is telling a story that is a character piece. Um, and there are, you know, a few characters who really, really jump out. So yes, the... Uh, the first season really gave us uh, Allison Tolman. That was sort of the the biggest breakout character. Also, Colin Hanks had a big arc on that season. Then, obviously, season two, yes, was the Kirsten Dunst and um, Jesse Plemons season, right? Like, really gives you so many colors of those people. Also, Gene Smart. Um, and then season three was Ewan McGregor and Mary Elizabeth Winstead and mixed reviews. But the point is, um, the show really rises and falls, lives and dies on the back of one person having a character that is so multi-layered, multicolored. And so what I love about this piece is Chris Rock going, I didn't know that I could do that before, even though he'd done some drama. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would feel like they could do a Chris Rock impression, right? And it yeah. would be, you know what it would be. It would be that sort of semi-screaming, angry, laughing stand-up voice that he did for a long time, right? And yeah. I think what I'm what I'm hearing in this piece is that he was sort of not relying on that, but maybe thought that that's what people wanted most of. So that's super interesting. Yeah, I really like that part too, where he talks about certain like iconic roles. When Denzel Washington was Devil in the Blue Dress, he was ready to take that on. And he says, I wasn't ready. Like I wasn't there yet. Later on, there's a part from, uh, you know, a section where one of his collaborators said that uh, I think it was like in 2014, he 
or at least a decade ago when he was on Broadway and he was working with Scott Rudin and his, um, and he is described as like, once he was in Rudin's world, I think he realized I'm an artist, which he was probably loath to call himself prior to that. So it's, and that is from there, he went on to write a top five, which I love that movie. I don't know if you've seen, but I love the movie top five. It's so good. Um, and he wrote it, he, um, he directed it and he starred in, and that is when, like, you know, I think that he started at least the beginnings of like wondering where else he could take his talent. And of course now, you know, he's really exploring that. He talks about how he's in therapy and he's sort of moving into that direction where he wants to be talked about as, um, yes, the greatest, one of the greatest stand-up comics of all time, but also a very skilled, very talented actor. And a project like Fargo is going to be w- like the beginning of conversations where we talk about, oh, Chris Rock, Golden Globe nomination, SAG nomination, Emmy nomination. Like that's where, and we really haven't talked about Chris Rock from that perspective. He hosts award shows. Right. He doesn't necessarily get nominated. At well, that. and one of the reasons why, you know, you asked, do I remember top five? And um, one of the things is, I'm not sure if I do. Uh, when I think of it, I always think of uh, a project in and around a similar time called I Think I Love My Wife. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so here's the thing is in top five is Chris Rock playing Chris Rock? in some way, shape, or form. Right. And in I Think I Love My Wife, he's playing some version of Chris Rock, not least because, you know, he explored some of those areas and then um, got quite publicly divorced a few years later. Um, Or, and I think a lot of people have forgotten about this, but my mid-90s delight was Everybody Hates Chris, which was a, you know, a fictionalized telling of Chris Rock's growing up narrated by Chris Rock like he literally doesn't have a lot of roles hasn't had a lot of roles where he wasn't just being a version of himself which happens to some stand-ups right I feel like Amy Schumer has that or like uh I don't know like a Whitney Cummings maybe right like it's their brand in and of itself is so novel that it's like, let's just have you be you over and over again. The other thing that is really deeply, deeply fascinating uh, to me in this article, and the content of the piece is a little more nuanced than the headline I'm about to give. Uh, But Chris Rock openly debates whether he might have Asperger's syndrome or otherwise mm-hmm. be on the spectrum. And I, I look, did this surprise you to read? It did. Cause yeah. I was floored. I was knocked over. Not because uh, we, not because I think that Chris Rock can't have Asperger's syndrome, um, but because this is all part and parcel of what we're talking about. Uh, obviously like, Come on, we don't know these people, but also you cover them, you follow them, you make certain assumptions. He is not the kind of person I thought would ever make an admission like this. Um, I think it is incredible and incredibly powerful to go, 
oh yeah, of course, there are people in every walk of life who are not neurotypical, uh, if such a thing as neurotypical even exists. Of course, there are people who we think of as quirky or uh, having, you know, sort of different ideas of how they want to relate to people that now we have labels for. I found it to be extremely exciting because A, it puts a new face on uh, what somebody could look like on the autism spectrum. And B, I think it is a huge stigma remover to go, and you can be hugely and incredibly successful and learn this about yourself. And I know we all know this in the anonymous feel-good article kind of way, um, where somebody writes about like their 11-year-old son named Jeremy, but it is hugely powerful in this context. It is. And to be clear, what had happened was a friend suggested to him that he may have Asperger's. And so he then went to, you know, for testing and what they later determined um, is is now a diagnosis of nonverbal learning disorder. Um, to quote, as he's come to understand it, he has tremendous difficulty with nonverbal signals, which doesn't sound too drastic until, as he explains, you consider that some 80% of communication is nonverbal. And all I understand are the words. And so that is where that, you know, it, you know, it started with a friend making that suggestion. And then he ended up going for professional uh, assistance and analysis. And that's what it's come back with. And now he's trying to understand himself and how this diagnosis has actually informed all the other parts of his life in the past. His relationships, obviously, how he works, what's most effective for him when it doesn't work for him, the mistakes he's made, and whether or not in, 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 in some cases it could be an asset. Absolutely. And um, thank you for the clarification and pointing out what it was that was said. I think that's significant for two reasons. Um, number one, because... Uh, you know, somebody, it's when a friend says something to you, somebody who has known you for many, many years that you kind of go, oh, I didn't consider that possibility. And it becomes about, hey, did you, did you check this out the same way it's, did you read this book? Did you look at this recipe? It's not an indictment, right? The other thing yeah. is that um, psychologists and clinicians and so forth are constantly relabeling things and diagnoses and reformatting that what used to be known as uh, autism may actually be Asperger's syndrome. What may be Asperger's syndrome is no longer diagnosed. It's all on a spectrum or learning disorders mm -hmm. that we knew of like, uh, like dyslexia or whatnot. Everybody remembers when Theo Huxtable had dyslexia, they're no longer diagnosed with those words. So things are constantly changing and whatever it is that Chris Rock has been diagnosed with may have been labeled in some other way. I don't know how. I'm not his doctor. Um, but I think that is very exciting and freeing as well to go, oh, okay, like it's it, it, part of the reason there isn't a stigma is because you can discard those old labels and just go, oh, this is actually just the blueprint of my brain and how it works. And yeah, of course course it's an asset. Of course, it's clearly a mega asset for him um, because he's been this successful and the verbal communication that he does understand or that he obviously understands to a genius level 
in order to be able to communicate with people for 35 years as well as he does um, is maybe a, yeah, an overcompensation for that which he doesn't understand. Right. And now the, like, and now, you know, knowing it and understanding it can be now that you know what it is and how to address it, or at least begin learning tools, it's, it's a different kind of superpower. Absolutely. Especially because I would say, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, but, um, the comedy community, specifically stand-up comedians are known as misanthropes right? Generally speaking, they don't like people. And that's not even maybe, uh, you know, it's a stereotype, but it's a stereotype for a reason. Um, And to sort of go, oh, this might be part of why. Uh, Part of the reason maybe that I don't like people is maybe I don't understand people. Maybe this is a reason why. Uh, Please note, I'm not saying all comedians are on any sort of spectrum of any kind. That's not what I'm saying. Um, But it helps you, to your point, not only to go, oh, it might be a secret superpower, but to explain how did I get here in the first place? Why did I choose left instead of right in these specific circumstances that got me to where I am? Specifically because in that space, there's like, you know, I, I, there's, there's probably no more vulnerable situation than to be an effective stand-up in the way that Chris Rock does. Absolutely. Like you are self-examining and interrogating. Um, You are punching out, but the only way you can do that is to punch in as well. So at least when it's done effectively and especially in these new times. And so for him to be able to reach another level of understanding of who he is, I can... I can imagine that it's only going to elevate his art since, you know, he is more comfortable with calling himself an artist now, his art to another level. Well, this is why maybe it's so effective to have the sequence of events be long series of life and career and then a diagnosis that you look backward at, right? You go, oh, all of these things, I now see these things through this lens And I understand Mm -hmm. why they work this way, as opposed to um, if you have the diagnosis first, looking forward, it's, oh, here are all the things that might be hard that I might not be able to do. Um, I certainly, I think uh, I had an ADHD diagnosis uh, some years ago now, maybe five years ago. It was, it was a, I was, it was a celebration because you're like, oh, I get it. This all makes sense now. It's not about, oh, it's not my fault that I lose my keys. It's still my fault. Um, but it becomes about uh, understanding here are the ways that I've been, uh, as you say, capitalizing on this unique mm-hmm. sort of chemistry all this time. And it's super exciting to see him talk about that in print. I think it's also worth noting that the article, more than most profiles, uh, it's really uh, specific about how long, over how much time the interview took place, right? Like there's an initial- Six months gap. Yeah. There's a six month gap. Which is wild because some of that may be COVID related, but it's wild to go- okay, part one of our interview is in 
say, May, and part two is in November. Those are not the specific months, but it's wild to go. Of course, things would change in somebody's life over that amount of time. Well, and what I like from a work perspective on them addressing the six months in in between is like what he what he has come to like obviously there's been a lot of re- self reflection over the last six months he's learned how to swim literally going into the deep end but this goes back or this this goes back to a common theme that we always touch on but I don't know that we have reframed it in the time of COVID which is what he said um, what people don't realize is that athletes get that time. He's talking about rest, recovery, a break. Right. And you can't obtain greatness, he continues, without the time to rest and work on yourself and your faults. And it's true. Like when we talk about sports, we often talk about the need to have an off season, um, the need to have space in between games, the space in between shifts even, um, you know, in a given game. But for work and, you know, Hamilton, we learned about taking a break and the value of that. that. But in the last six months, when a lot of us have been working from home, there hasn't been a real opportunity to break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, your, your life think is surrounding work, you all the I time. I think work is suffering. Yeah. I think a lot of work is suffering. And I also think that companies and industries out there, not just in show business, are really not respecting that enough. Well, and they don't know how, to be fair, right? They don't know uh, what the results will be of letting there be breaks, of having people take time off. I actually got something almost entirely different from the athlete sequence, even though he was talking about it in regard to in regards to taking breaks and time off. I was thinking about how when we say, oh, you know, a diagnosis or, a, or therapy or whatever can be like a look under the hood. Athletes have that all the time. And athlete mm-hmm. stats are out there for public consumption. Everybody knows, right? You are, you have a great jump shot. You hit this amount of the time. You don't have this. You do have that. Your stats are public and everybody has different ones. You're not trying to have the exact same stats as anybody else. You couldn't, right? But it is about you work within your particular parameters and we build a team or a play or whatever based around everybody's unique superpowers, to your point, um, which I thought was really interesting. That's something that uh, an athlete can focus on, on their work, on their improvement of themselves because what they don't have or what they need to work on is so clear and present. I love what you just said about looking under the hood because, you know, if we're going to take this analogy and this example of what happens in the sports world, they have paid medical and training staff Mm -hmm. whose job it is to look under the hood. How's the knee today? Right. How's, how's that, you know, how's that, that elbow that's been bothering you? And that is part of their work day of an athlete is to check in with the medical staff and the training team who are paid by the company. In other words, the team. More and more teams are adding mental health staff so that there's someone on hand. That isn't necessarily a part of other workplaces' makeup. A a medical 
like a you know a mental health expert, a psychiatrist, a therapist who's part of the actual work day. And who's tailored who to sees. you. Who you don't That's fix right. everybody's knee because one guy's knee is fucked, right? I think that is what becomes a problem is that when workplaces say they're going to do a mental health initiative uh, and then everybody has to do yoga or meditation or uh, work out in the company gym because it's subsidized or whatnot. And it's like you actually, if you want to do this, if you want to talk about health and mental health and so forth, it's about addressing each person individually and uniquely for the good of all instead of the one size fits all kind of solutions that we often put in place. How often is that, you know, talked about when we talk about workplace and mental health and the advancements of like creating, listen, in the first part of this podcast, we talked about the creation of a new, like a necessary creation of a new person on sets, the COVID compliance officer, because there is a pandemic. We already know that there is a mental health epidemic. So when is it going to be standard operating procedure for every workplace to have at minimum a mental health officer, a, you know, a therapist who not only is just like hanging out or like totally removed, but who attends meetings, who observes the work that is happening, who makes recommendations for an improvement of certain work, who somebody knows then develops a relationship with on the team to be able to go and talk to them. I'm really struggling. This assignment that we had really pushed me into a place of, of, of darkness. Like if there is, if we have established that there isn't a mental health epidemic, and people are working and working overtime and working from home, like, shouldn't that be a standardized thing? Well, this is the part where I get cynical because I'm not telling the work-mandated therapist anything, particularly if it's, I don't like my boss or I don't like you. I think the closest you could come is mandating, uh, you know, in somebody's 40 hours a week that one hour is meant to be for therapy. And that you are meant to schedule your therapy with your the therapist of your choice at that time. Like, yes, it's a benefit, yeah. but also providing the time for people to take it, right? Isn't that the thing with people who get benefits that they try to, you know, use up all their massage therapy at the end of the year or get new glasses yeah. or something because they haven't had time to implement it as, it. A, as a constant, right? Um, yeah. So I don't want that person at my meetings. Um, because I also don't want that person deciding when I need mental health help. I want that to be on me, I think. But until we agree openly and loudly that it's important, and you do see it, and this is, I'll just go ahead and say, this is something that the entertainment industry is uh, further ahead on than some other industries. You will see more people in those industries say, uh, I can't, I can't meet at four o'clock. I have therapy. I got to pick up the kids on Tuesdays at three. Like it's not a secret. It's not something that is hidden. It is something that is as much a part of your day as getting groceries or going to yeah. the dentist. Um, but until that's across the board, uh, we're not, we're not quite there yet. No, I agree. I mean, all of your points are so valid. Um, and 
to me, it's it's just a shame. Number one, because there is a lot of like underlying HR distrust there where that comes from. Like, I don't want to talk about this person, about my boss to this person. And that is also what a lot of people say about HR, totally. right? Like, I mean, we... We, a few months ago, we addressed the problem with HR. Like this is inherently a, a, an arm of the company that works for the company that acts in service of the company. It's hard to believe that those people are working um, on your behalf. And so the same, Duanna, to your point about a mental health staffer at work, the same could be applied there. And yet, again, as as you said, who has the time to go to therapy at two o'clock, Right. Well, right. I like you do it on your off work hours and that is the the disconnect here. Um but you know, to Chris Rock's point, look what it's done for and him. And this is where if we were at business school, we'd say you're losing your employee productivity time if you don't build it into your week. That's right. All of this we all of these conversations stem from this one profile on Chris Rock. It's really great. You may have no interest in exploring uh, more of your mental health or more of Chris Rock's, uh, but I do think it's going to be really interesting to see how this affects him as a performer. Um, I also want people to jump into Fargo because it's so easy to do. Unlike any other show, you can do it without having watched previous seasons. So if this is intriguing for you in a way that others haven't, uh, other seasons haven't been or other roles of his, let us know. See if there's something in this that twigs something for you. And finally, just a quick, a quick little homework assignment, which shouldn't feel like homework. Duanna, this is your specialty. Um, you have a few, but one of the specialties we talked about is you will read any celebrity memoir. Not any, uh, but it many. is your thing. I like them a lot. Um, I love that you said homework. I thought you were going to say PSA, but go on. There is a big one. It's a big one. Um, available now. It just came out yesterday, Tuesday, September 29th. The meaning of Mariah Carey. Um, it, there is an audiobook version, so you can hear Mariah Carey reading her own book about herself, which is like next level. I think I'm not usually an audiobook person, but I think I might have to audiobook this one. Um, can you imagine <laughs> like, if uh, she like illustrates like <laughs> stories about songs with like a little vocal trill or something? Now, you were obsessed with Open Book by Jessica Simpson. I mean, this was the one I would, if I may, say that for it was the it's been the best one. It certainly was the best of 2019, no question. Um, and yes, certainly crazy enough, it came out this year, Duanna. That's impossible. That's actually <laughs> impossible. Um, it came out in February of 2020. I don't want to talk about yes, that. Yes, I see anymore. Your point. Yeah. Yes, it is absolutely in the top. Three celebrity memoirs. Yes. And it seems like Mimi is going there in the same way that Jessica Simpson did. We Listen, I, it remains to be seen. I, I mean, but I, I know you're going to devour this. I really want to chuckle and giggle, but also who knew that that open book was going to be what it was? So, yes, I'm going to devour it. Uh, I look forward to, you know, a quick a quick sprint through the Kindle version and then maybe go back for the audiobook for a second round. 
I just, I just want to like remind you that this was the thing that like you could barely focus on Oscar weekend because you were reading it. And we were in LA. My God, this is talking about being in LA and doing the things we used to do right now as a trip. But we were in LA just let you know, we always share a room when we're in LA for Oscar weekend. And Duanna, like literally every fucking 15 minutes would be reading this book and be like, oh, Elaine, you just have to read this part. Let me just read it to you. This book, Elaine, you really have to. And I was just all weekend. I was like, I got you. It's just, we're doing something else right now. Was I wrong? No, it really has been like top I would actually say it's the best celebrity memoir I've ever read I mean listen I there's I can't even argue it's it's the one to beat let's put it that way so so it's the one Mimi has to beat so everybody read Mariah Carey's The Meaning of Mariah Carey because we'll likely be talking about next week yes so read fast and fast and good let's say uh, in the meantime, let us know your thoughts on the COVID compliance officer and Chris Rock. Um, read Mariah Carey. We will be back soon. Thank you so much for your patience um, as we took a little break because everybody needs a break. Um, and we will be back very soon. Thanks for asking about us. We appreciated being missed. And we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.